Thank you for downloading this man-to-man podcast from Awakened Heart Ministries. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Dr. Scott Engelman and the Awakened Heart Ministries team on our website at ahm4.life. From the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2, we discover four things about what it means to be human. If this whole gender revolution revolves around what does it mean to be human, then what we want to do, if we're going to look at it through the lens of Scripture, we want to go back to the very beginning, the story of creation, to discover what the Scripture, what God says about what it means for you and I to be human, right? Welcome to Session 4, Part 1 of this AHM Connect series, Speaking Into the Chaos. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Um, we didn't put the passage on there, but that was from Genesis 3.15. Um, he will, you will crush, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head, the serpent. Well, it's good to have you here this morning. Today we are uh, focusing on part two of our second um, section. Uh, speaking into the chaos, assaulting gender and sexuality. Our first focus was speaking into the chaos regarding uh, assaulting gender. Uh, last time, and we began speaking into assaulting gender and sexuality. And there was just so much. I, I, I wanted you to have a good overall understanding of what this whole gender sexual revolution is about. That we spent most of our time. We spent all time there. And then we decided we would then uh, do the second part uh, in December. We picked the, the third section, first introduction, then marriage and family, gender and sexuality. And then 2021, we will begin, we will finish our fourth one, which is uh, speaking into the chaos, assaulting justice and virtue. So that's where we are today, and that's why this is part two. Um, so as we get started here, let me just summarize part one, if you were here, you remember. We said that the current chaotic cloud hovering over America today, all this chaotic storm, is uh, what we call the gender revolution. It is part of contemporary secular, um, uh, the secularism, contemporary secularism. And this gender revolution has been progressively developing. It just didn't happen overnight. It began really in the 50s with feminism, and then in the 60s, the gay rights movement, and then in the 2000s, the, the whole idea of the LGBTQ movement. We, remember we said that today the T of, of the LGBTQ is the most important of the letters. It stands for transgender. And, um, and I, if you remember, I said, but watch in the days to come, the T is going to lose its place and the Q, which stands for queer, anything abnormal, anything that's outside the norm. That's the idea of queer. And so it's been progressively developing uh, here in America. It's built around a genuine concern, a real concern, and that is uh, gender identity dysphoria, this this idea or this this. Um, disorder that uh, some men or women have, and it is they are male, a man might be a man on the outside, but he feels like a woman on the inside. A woman might be uh, female on the outside, but she feels like a man on the inside. 
it's a very real disorder and there is a number of people that really struggle with it. And so it's built around this concern for people. It's a real painful struggle. It creates a lot of pain, a lot of isolation, a lot of shame, a lot of suicide, uh, just a lot of emotional uh, and, and physical problems. It's But it's centered, even though it's built around this genuine concern, it's centered in a radical ideology. And that is that human identity is self-defined and it transcends all biological reality. We'll say a little bit more about that. It's pushing a political agenda, make this radical ideology mainstream. In other words, it isn't just enough that some people believe it. There's a political uh, agenda here, and that is to make this idea that human identity is self-defined and transcends all biological reality, make that idea mainstream. It's actively being implemented today. If you watch TV, uh, Hollywood, all the shows on, on Amazon or Prime or Netflix, Hulu, uh, in the education system, from K to college, and it's being enacted through the different laws uh, of the land and state laws, federal laws. And it's uh, serious about changing our minds. Uh, they are really want to make this happen. And uh, to, if we fail to embrace this, and I called it a new orthodoxy because it is a religion, and this is the orthodoxy of the religion, uh, embrace it or else suffer the consequences. And we discussed that a bit. And if there was one key takeaway that I wanted you to go away with last time that I want us to remember this time, it's this, that the gender revolution today in America, is aggressively pushing a secular ideology based on critical theory. Remember, critical theory is what? It's the idea that power is everything and that there are certain groups, privileged groups that have power that use that power to oppress marginalized groups. And the only way that marginalized groups can ever change things is to uh, do what? Get power through revolution, okay? and But it's based on critical theory with regards, again, to what it means to be human. That's the whole issue behind the gender revelation, uh, revolution today. What does it mean to be human? Now, according to this ideology, human beings are self-defined, self-conscious persons that only inhabit a non-personal body. Okay, the real person, remember we saw last time, is a conscious gender self that is progressively identified, self-identified through subjective internal feelings. In other words, over time, I, I began to realize, you know what, while I may have a, a male body, I'm really not a male person, I'm a female person. How do I know? Because my subjective feelings on the inside Tell me that's who I am. And the physical body then is an all but meaningless tool that at best, at best serves the conscious uh, gender self. But most of the time, especially if it's at odds, it will not serve it. It will fail to serve the conscious gender self. And that then becomes the problem that, that the whole idea addresses. 
And it also tells us this ideology that male and female are artificial categories and oppressive social constructs. In other words, they're just made up. By who? By the privileged group. Those who have the power created these ideas, these categories of male and female. And as a result, they are harmful to marginalized groups. People who are not cisgender, as they would call it, or heterosexual in nature. Okay? Now, uh, we concluded with a question. What are we to think about the gender revolution and its message about human identity? What are we to think about it? Everything, the laws, uh, environment, or the, the entertainment, uh, is all telling us, education, that we are to think that this is normal, that this is true, that this is the way it is. And so is it a legitimate message that our heteronormative privilege bias has blinded us to? Or, is it a deceptive message of the ancient serpent dressed up in a new skin? That's the question we ended with. And we suggested in order to answer this, we need to do what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 16.21. He says, just as you were good at interpreting the weather by looking at the signs around us, so, he says, we need to learn to interpret the signs of the times by reading them, interpreting them through the lens of Scripture. And so our approach then today is that we, that's us, want to look at the signs of the times that we looked at last time through the lens of Scripture. And by doing this, my hope is is that we will come away with an answer for, is this really true? And we're just missing it because we're biased. Or is what this ideology, the gender revolution ideology telling us false? Is it wrong? Is it a deceptive message that comes from the ancient serpent that began his work in the Garden of Eden? That's our approach today. So our outline today, three things. We're going to focus mostly on this first point, God's good design for human beings. And then we're going to uh, conclude by looking at the serpent's assault on the goodness of human identity. We're just going to compare and contrast uh, what he did in the, the garden with what he's doing today. And then we want to end with the masculine choice set before us. What are we going to do about this as men? How, what will it mean for us to speak into this gender chaos? Okay, ready? So point one, God's good design for human beings. From the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2, we discover four things about what it means to be human. If this whole question revolves around, the, the gender revolution revolves around what does it mean to be human, then what we want to do, if we're going to look at it through the lens of Scripture, we want to go back to the very beginning, the story of creation, to discover what the Scripture, what God says about what it means for you and I to be human, right? So four things. First, to be human means that we, first and foremost, are created beings. Genesis 2, 5 through 7. Now there was no man to work the ground. So the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Okay? Notice, 
To be human means that our existence is not an accident of evolution, but it, it rather is an intentional act of the Creator God. It's not an accident of evolution, it's an intentional act by the Creator God. Human beings exist, notice, by the will of God, so the Lord God formed a man. He does it because he wants to. Second, according to the design of God, he took the dust from the ground and he formed it according to his purposes, his design. And it was for his purposes. There was no man in to work the ground. God wanted a man to work the ground, so he willed a man to come into existence. He formed him, he shaped him, and he did it to have a purpose. Okay? So human beings exist not as an accident of evolution, but by the will of God, according to the design of God, for the purposes of God. Now note, the creation story makes two things clear here. First, God is the creator who is sovereign over the creation which he made, right? He made it and he's sovereign over it. It also makes clear that human beings, we are part of the creation over which God is sovereign. Right? Put through the scriptures, it's often put like this. He is the potter and we are the clay. The potter is sovereign over the clay. The potter forms the clay according to his will, the way he wants it, according to his design, and for his purpose. Now, what this means then is this. Human beings are not sovereign over themselves. We don't determine who we are, what we're for, why we're here. Only God the Creator is sovereign. He determines that. God, therefore, then has the authority to assign to humans their identity, and their purpose, we don't. We're part of the creation over which he is sovereign. Next, humans lack authority to recreate themselves as they desire. We don't have that authority. God's design, because he's sovereign, God's design and his purpose for human beings is binding. It is fixed. We can't change that. He is sovereign. We are part of the creation over which he is sovereign. Next, this means that humans who reject God's creational design and purpose for human identity are rebelling against God. They're rebelling against his creation. They're rebelling against his sovereignty as creator. It also means then that humans experience pain when they misalign themselves with God's creational design and purpose. When we, uh, when we deny gravity, you can deny gravity, but you, no matter how much you deny it, you're still going to experience it. If you jump off a cliff denying gravity, it doesn't matter what you deny. The reality is, is what? Gravity is going to take you down. Humans experience pain when they misalign themselves with God's creational design and purpose. And humans cannot flourish as God intends, therefore, when misaligned with their creational design and purpose. We all want to flourish. God made us to flourish. But the only way we can flourish, when we as human beings are living under his authority, according to his purposes, according to his design. 
what it means to be human. Okay? And so then, what do we see? To be human means we are created beings, fully dependent on the Creator God, under the binding authority of the Sovereign God. In fact, Acts 17.28, Paul says this, In Him we live and move and have our being. We don't exist because of ourselves. We exist because of Him, right? Psalm 100, verse 3, Acknowledge. The idea means Acknowledge and submit to this truth that the Lord is God. What does that mean? It means that He made us. We belong to Him. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. Why? Because He made us. He owns us. Romans 9.20 says this, But who are you, a mere human being, to challenge God? Shall what is created say to the one who created it, Why did you make me like this? In other words, God is sovereign, and we are not. And because He is sovereign over His creation, and we are part of His creation, we are under His authority, and who He has made us is binding as human beings. Again, we can deny this reality, but we can never escape it. Right? Second, to be human not only means to be a created being, it also means that we are embodied souls. Embodied souls. Listen to what he says in Genesis 2-7. The story says, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Now notice, to be human is to be both dust and breath. To be human is to be both dust and breath. Now, what does it mean when it says that God formed us from dust? Well, what it in essence means is that human beings have a material embodied identity that is inseparably linked to the ground. When God makes us, he reaches down and he takes the dust from the ground and he forms it into an embodied human being. The ground, notice something. The ground is the word Adama in the Hebrew. And it means the good material creation. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. The word for man is what? Adam. Notice the similarity, the play on words. Adama, ground, Adam, the man. This tells us that the man is a materially embodied human. He is embodied from the material of the ground. But also the word mankind or humankind, you know what that is? It's Adam. And the only way you know the difference between the man and mankind is the context. But it's it's the same thing, and it's connecting us back to the word ground, which tells us then that human identity is connected to embodied materiality, which goes back to the ground. We are embodied uh, identity. We have an embodied identity that is inseparably linked to the ground. In other words, we could be called groundlings or earthlings. That's who we are. Our existence is here on the earth. We're bound to the earth. 
part of the year. Okay? Now, no, something. Because we have a, an embodied identity, to be disembodied in death is a subhuman state caused by sin. James 2, 26 says, the body without the soul is dead. Okay? So at death, the body and soul separate. That is a subhuman state. Would you agree? To be dead is a subhuman state. To be re-embodied through resurrection is the Christian hope for being fully human again. God made us to be fully human. And he wants us always to be fully human. That's a good thing. But to be fully human involves an embodied identity. Death disembodies us. So God's solution is through the gospel to what? Re-embody us through physical resurrection. In fact, to do that, <clears throat> to restore us to full humanity, Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus shared uh, in, our, in our humanity, our flesh and blood, by becoming embodied through his own incarnation. That's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. The embodiment of Jesus, the embodiment of God through the incarnation. So, we're, brought, we're dust, means we have an embodied identity, but we're also breath. God fills us with breath, which means then that human beings have an ensouled identity that is uniquely linked to the breath of God. In the creation story that we just looked at, God intimately acts. He breathes into the nostrils. It's like he's given mouth to mouth through the nose. He's breathing into Adam's nose to impart lifeless, uh, to impart to this lifeless dust, uh, with his life-giving breath. It's interesting that in the creation story, it says that God put the breath of life into animals, but it's a different breath of life, and it's never intimate. Only with Adam, he intimately bowed, bends down, and he breathes his breath into Adam, and it says it creates in, in this lifeless dust a living breath, or a, a, this breath of life to produce a living soul. To be human is to be an ensouled identity. Now, what is the human soul? A lot we could say about this, but let me just give you an overview. According to the Bible, the human soul is the life force that animates the body. Without the soul, what happens to the body? It crumbles down and it decays and turns back to dust. Uh, the soul is also the moral capacity for a functioning conscious necessary to relate with God, the Bible tells us. I think when God breathes his own breath into the man, that creates that moral capacity. God is imparting something of himself into the human being. We'll say a little bit more about that in a second here. But, but it creates this moral capacity that other animals don't have to relate with God. And thirdly, the soul in the Bible is just an umbrella term for human desiring, for human thinking, for human choosing and feeling. It's the real you. It's the real me. It's our personality. It's what makes our, our body uniquely us. 
That's the soul. And so then, what do we see? The creation story tells us that human beings are created uh, beings formed from the dust of the earth to be embodied beings. In other words, we don't possess a body. We are a body. But we're also animated with the breath of life, God's breath, to be in soul beings, which means that we don't possess a soul. We are a soul. So we are a body and we are a soul. And you put that together, you do that math, and united together as one indivisible and soul or embodied soul or in soul body. You can't take away the soul and have a human being, and you can't take away the body and have a human being. Why? Because we are an embodied soul. We're not a body that possesses a soul, and we're not a soul that possesses a, a body. We are an embodied soul. Okay? Now, let me give you an illustration to help us understand this. So, we had an old Uncle Joe, and Uncle Joe died. And we go to Uncle Joe's funeral, and at Uncle Joe's funeral, the pastor says this. You know, old Uncle Joe, that's not him lying there in the coffin. And that's because Uncle Joe is up in heaven with Jesus. He trusted Jesus as his Savior. He's dead. That's not Uncle Joe lying there. He's really up there in heaven. You heard something like that before? Is that correct? Is that the right answer? Is it true? Come back in five minutes and I'll tell you. <laughs> we hope that Scott's message today has encouraged you and helps you to better understand how God intended the power he gave us to be used. Please visit our website, ahm4.life, and click on the resources tab. There you will see the man-to-man podcast and other resources we have available. At AHM, our mission is to provide hope and direction to men in a confusing world through Jesus Christ. Please continue to keep our ministry in your prayers, and if you'd like to donate to our efforts, visit our website and click on the Giving tab. Man-to-man podcasts are provided by Awaken Heart Ministries, located in Troy, Michigan.